Welcome to the Journal of American History podcast for January 2013. I'm delighted to welcome two cherished colleagues and friends, husband and wife, to this podcast conversation, James Blight and Janet Lang. Jim Blight is the CG Chair of Foreign Policy Development at the Balsillie School of International Affairs at the University of Waterloo. Janet is Research Professor at the Balsillie School. Over several decades, Jim and Janet have developed and applied an innovative research method, Critical Oral History, that makes use of memories of former decision-makers, declassified documents, and scholarly analysis to investigate a wide range of events in recent U.S. foreign policy. The integrity and effectiveness of this approach is clear from the enthusiasm with which decision-makers and scholars from many countries have participated in their work. Jim and Janet have been the principal organizers of more than two dozen conferences in several countries that have focused on, for example, the 1961 Bay of Pigs invasion, the 1962 Cuban Missile Crisis, the U.S. war in Vietnam, the collapse of U.S.-Soviet detente that led to Soviet intervention in Afghanistan, and the Western response. Our focus today is the intense and ongoing reexamination of the Cuban Missile Crisis and its contemporary significance. Beginning at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government, then at Brown University's Watson Institute for International Studies, Jim and Janet organized six conferences on the Cuban Missile Crisis in the U.S., Russia, Antigua, and Cuba. They have often served as advisors for film and television producers, including most notably the principal advisors to Errol Morris's 2004 Academy Award-winning film, The Fog of War, and the following year co-producers of a film that won numerous awards, Virtual JFK, Vietnam If Kennedy Had Lived. Listeners can easily find the many important book projects that they have produced, and I urge you to read their compelling book, The Armageddon Letters, and visit their innovative new website, thearmageddonletters.com. Jim and Janet, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. Hey, you're welcome. Thanks for inviting us, Ed. This will be fun. So we met many years ago in the fall of 1986 when I was a research fellow in the Defense and Arms Control Studies Policy Program at MIT. And I remember Jim coming to a talk that I gave, and most people there not really having a sense of what I was uh, doing. And Jim sat with a big smile on his face and sort of understood better than I what I was doing. And Thus began a long friendship uh, between the three of us that goes on uh, to this day. And when the Armageddon letters came out, it, it struck me beyond the power of the book itself, the way you frame the Kennedy, Khrushchev, Castro conversations in this wonderfully uh, creative form that, that you'll talk about. Uh, it struck me that uh, the Cuban Missile Crisis, as you want people to think, is is so timely. And it made me think of the way that I do my course on the bomb in American culture, that thinking about the danger of nuclear weapons as a kind of relic of the Cold War is is really not the best way to think about this, that this is present and contemporary um, in ways that you, you really 
jerk people <clears throat> to realize. So we'll, we'll get to that. <clears throat> but I'd like to go back and think um, with you and have you reflect a little on how, how you, you started thinking about this, how your careers, your life together um, led you to doing critical oral history, to putting together the major conferences, to your work with um, Bob McNamara. So uh, take us all back um, 20, 25 years ago. The method, actually, uh, you know, we have policymakers and declassified documents and scholarly analysis. We put them at a table and we bring it to a boil and see what happens. And one of the, the, the motive behind it really wasn't very uh, profound, maybe in a way, but we, we, as you went over our various uh, bios, I mean, you can see how we're not sort of out of the standard issue IR uh, camp. We've got a lot of different things that we do, but most of them are other departments. So when we got involved in the nuclear question in the 80s, when a lot of people were involved in it because Reagan was scary. Uh, some of his people were pretty scary about this. Um, it, we, we, we looked around for, you know, what's our comparative advantage here? Um, well, not, we're not experts. And I guess we fell back a little bit on our training in psychology because I think we're good listeners. And, uh, and it, it, the way it evolved during the uh, study of the missile crisis was that we... Um, we developed the uh, reputation of being honest brokers. We weren't pro-hawk or pro-dove, and then we weren't pro-Russian or pro-American or pro-Cuban or anti-Cuban. And uh, everybody wanted in after a certain point, and, and uh, that became kind of the model of, of how we work. And now the Cold War history is, I think, done more often this way than any other way, primarily because it has these critical... Uh, these key facets where you, you need people who are alive who actually participated in things, but you, you got you need some distance or you won't get any declassified material. And if you wait too long, of course, everybody's dead, and then they, you know, they took all those secrets to the grave with them. So the Cold War um, ethos is just about right for this. So that's kind of, you know, we were dealing with a, uh, the field was dealing with two people from cognitive psychology who didn't know their rear end from their elbow when mm -hmm. they first got into this. Yeah, but part of the issue here, um, in a sense, what our comparative advantage was, was that we weren't trained uh, to do what we were going to be doing. Um, that we had what we might call our beginner's mind. And so we were able to sort of, uh, it started really in, in the, you know, the 80s when the motivation was we were worried about nuclear risk. It seemed way too high. And was there anything at the margins that, you know, that we could do to contribute to sort of understanding it, maybe lowering it, and so forth. And so it was always a very contemporary um, policy-oriented uh, view that motivated us. And then Jim had the idea, well, if we're interested in nuclear danger, what sort of the, you know, how close did we ever come before? What can we learn from history? And while we're not uh, trained historians, we have enormous respect for, for the use of history, but you have to do the very best you can to get it as right as you can. Obviously, it'll always be incomplete and so forth, but you really have to give it the full court press to see as much as you can what it was like in real time. 
And I think that's, again, one of the key things about critical oral history is you try to get into the the mindset and the experience of the former decision makers going forward in time when they didn't know how it would work out. You know, as as historians, as policy-relevant people, whatever, as normal consumers of information, we come to something already knowing how it worked out. And that usually drains the emotion, the curiosity, the fear. So it was our interest to try to see if we could construct a time machine. And that's really what critical oral history is. It's an attempt at a time machine to get those people back into that mindset so that they could share something with us that only they had. They were the ones going through the experience with responsibility, not knowing how it would come out. And what could we learn from that? Yes. And am I remembering correctly that the first conference to bring together in this critical oral history process, which I think this is fair, isn't it, for for listeners, you bring together uh, policymakers, people who were involved, you bring historians, and then you bring uh, documents. Usually an 1,100-page briefing book. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Um, And is the first one, if I remember correctly, was it Hawks? Hawks K. Hawks K. And who, who were the participants there, and... What what were some of the stunning moments that, that you remember coming out of that, and when was it? That was in uh, March of 1987, which so this would be the year of the 25th anniversary of the Cuban Missile Crisis. And you know anybody who does a history of recent foreign policy realizes that your the odds of people paying attention rise slightly if you can uh, divide the year by the anniversary by five without remainder or 10 without remainder, 25 without remainder is even better. And of course, this past year is the 50th anniversary, which is about as good as it gets. So on the 25th, uh, or or in anticipation of the 25th anniversary, the following October of 87, um, we held a conference down in Florida. Why in Florida? Because it's March and it's sleety and crappy in New England. So we went down to Florida and uh, it was Americans all Americans, and the plan was, this is it. We had worked hard to convince our dean that there might be something, some little bit left to learn about the crisis. Our dean, Graham Allison, good friend of ours, uh, tried to discourage us by saying, why don't you just read my book? We don't have to go away to Florida. <laughs> well, uh, yeah. <laughs> we went down, and sure Actually, enough... Jimmy, one hmm? quick second. So the, part of the preparation, actually, for this um, this meeting was that Jim actually drafted uh, what would eventually come to be um, his first book on the the Cuban Missile Crisis, which is The Shattered Crystal Ball. Mm -hmm. And that sort of lays out this whole idea of trying to understand. At that point, he called it a kind of phenomenological psychology. You know, what was it like to be in the crisis in asking the participants, what were you attending to? So trying to get their psychological reality. Mm -hmm. And that was the argument to all of the principles that we, in recruiting them down here, was that we thought there was something more to learn on that dimension. So here's a moment. Uh, you're right to ask, like, what are the, some of the key moments? Because, uh, uh, you know, Janet used the expression, full court press. Well, I'm going to, you know, we're all basketball fans here. Uh, it, it is, it's, it's, once you get there, it is a lot like watching a game in which both teams have a full court press. It's total chaos sometimes. I mean, you never know whether the second item on your agenda you'll ever get to it because the first one might be too interesting and you might want to just forget about the rest or you might want to skip a couple. Anyway, that's kind of, you got to fly by the seat of your pants and 
so at one point, um, Richard Neustadt, Dick Neustadt, the late great uh, mm. historian, uh, presidential power, uh, he he didn't show up for a session. Where's Dick? Everybody's like, oh my God. Well, he overslept. And he came in and uh, he had been writing something and he said, he, he, he said some of the hawks who were there, like Doug Dillon was there. We had Nitza uh, no, in, a, in a statement Nitsa, yeah. given ahead of time. We had right. Maxwell Taylor on film because he was very ill at the time. Um, but he said, you know, some of you people are having trouble figuring out why Kennedy was cautious. Why, why was he like this? I mean, there was nothing to be afraid of. I mean, we had a 17 to 1 advantage in deliverable nuclear weapons, and so da-da-da-da-da, he should have just taken it right to the limit, just smacked him down, moved him out of Berlin. I mean, you know, that's what you're saying. And, of course, yeah, the heads went up and down, okay? He said, look, I just did a little uh, calculation, he said. Uh, let's say one of those bombs loaded up on a missile in Cuba, you know, let's say it hits Atlanta. 600,000 people die. So that's roughly about the number that died in the Civil War, and we're still not over that one. So you're, you're asking yourself, why should a president worry about a thing like that? Why should he make that the thing that he wants to avoid? He said, I ask you, why not? And then Tom Schelling, uh, later to win the Nobel Prize in Economics, who was hand-in-glove with the, the McNamara Pentagon during this time, but he never actually served in the government. He said he was watching the Cuban Missile Crisis on television in the basement of the Harvard Faculty Club. And everybody there were, you know, members of a, this, uh, uh, like a committee on arms control that Harvard and MIT ran. And when Kennedy made his speech on the 22nd of October, he said they cheered because, and as Tom said, we knew we were going to win this one because we knew the score. We knew how many we had. We knew how many they had and so forth. Um, and then he turned to Dick Neustadt and he said, but so tell me again why Kennedy was so worried. And then McNamara interrupted. And he said, I'll tell you why. I'll tell you why. Because we didn't know what the hell was going on. And God damn it, Tom, you were one of the consultants to the Pentagon, but it wasn't your responsibility. Tom Schelling, later I emphasized, to win the Nobel Prize, one of the world's smartest people, sat back in his chair and he said, ooh, then I guess it must make some difference if you have responsibility. And everybody looked at each other like, it's, how come the smartest man in the room just figured this out? How come the rest of us already knew this? Well, that was, since this was the first conference, we knew then that we had to do something with this dichotomy between analysts and advisors and so forth and people who actually make the decisions and who actually feel that, that weight on their shoulders. And I think a lot of what happened in the, last, in the subsequent mm -hmm. 25 years had to do with trying to work that terrain between the analyst and the decider. The other thing that happened um, at this conference, again, this was, was the first one, uh, and we had been doing, we, our goal was to try to, you know, recruit and talk with as many of the remaining um, uh, members of XCOM at that point. Uh, Ted Sorensen was, um, mm -hmm. you know, was there as well, and McNamara, of course, and George Ball. George Ball and so forth. Um, Dean Rusk did not come, but we corresponded with him, and then he um, he sent Jim a letter about oh three or four weeks I mm -hmm. think it was yeah. before the conference, mm -hmm. 
in which he said that for the first time he was revealing what came to be known as the Courtier ploy, which was at the height of the of the tension of the conference that Kennedy had spoken the to him. Although the conference was pretty tense, too, right, I agree. <laughs> at the height of the Cuban Missile Crisis, uh, Kennedy had pulled him aside and asked him to put into play a, a plan uh, that if they needed it, he wanted it there. And that was that uh, Rusk would go to his friend Andrew Cordier, who had connections at the UN, and basically talk with Utan to say, if we give you the go-ahead, we want you to present this idea that you know, the Soviets should give up the um, missiles in Cuba and the U.S. should give up the Turkish missiles and it will be met favorably. Now, at this point, uh, Rusk wrote in the letter, he said, Cordier was dead. Uh, Utant obviously was also dead and that he believed he was the only one that knew this and that, you know, people could believe him or not, uh, but he was putting this on the record. And so we had Mac Bundy call him to talk with him about this. And Mac did a private conversation and became convinced that, yes, indeed, this kind of thing had happened. Now, the, the thing that's important about it is that this was the beginning of a crack in this sort of mythical sense of Kennedy as the super cold warrior, um, pushing the reckless person and so forth. This was a different side of Kennedy who was trying to have a plan in place where he would take a political hit if he needed to, but certainly would be ready to to avoid you know a nuclear or military confrontation. This got amplified in many conferences after that, but this was sort of the first. Oh, this is the redoing of the of well, how we understand John F. Kennedy, because at almost exactly this time, Mac Bundy and I were going out to the Kennedy Library on a daily basis. And then I would wait for him to come out with these terrible upper-class sandwiches that he threw together because there was no food there in those days. And he was in there transcribing by hand because he had the clearances, transcribing by hand all the conversations that took place on October 27, 1962 uh, in the Kennedy XCOM group, uh, which is mo uh, all day and half the night. Um, so he was, what, what, what Bundy was seeing was that Kennedy was way out in front of his advisors. Kennedy had decided at some point in the early part of the crisis, uh, we're, this is not worth a war. This is absolutely not worth a war. This is going to be a terrible war. And if anybody's around afterward, uh, we, they should hang us on a tree. So I'm not going to do that. But, but the, the advisors are so concerned that giving in on this Turkish missile problem, Turks being NATO members, this is going to kill NATO. NATO's going to crash. They got, they got you know, kind of focused on that. NATO's going to fall apart. Where the Russians are going to take advantage of us. And Kennedy keeps saying, yeah, sure. But, I mean, what do you think is going to happen if we have a nuclear war? And, of course, there's no really good answer to that, but it's John F. Kennedy who's asking this question. So what, when, when we got this letter from Rusk that said Kennedy had a plan to avoid the war, even if no, he got nothing out of Khrushchev, because Khrushchev was asking for the Turkish missile trade at this point, um, he was going to give uh, Well, we don't know. I'm saying he was going to give it to him, but it is so consistent with the man who emerges from the from the transcript and uh, on the tapes now that, that, that we can listen to them. He is just not the guy who says, I'll pay any price and bear any burden the way he did in the inaugural. And yet this raises another question because his public persona was a, a sort of a, you know, the tough Irish warrior, but he was also something totally different behind the scenes. 
And th- th- until we had the documentation, until Russ gave us a hint, uh, there was really no way to know this. Schlesinger had said it, but we know that Schlesinger was one of the Camelot historians. Sorensen had said it, but we know the same thing about Ted Sorensen, and so forth. It turned out that that side of Kennedy actually existed, but it took uh, it took 25 years and and just a trickle of uh, documents compared to what we have now, just a trickle, and it became clear that this guy was this guy Kennedy was something pretty special. Was was this year uh, this conference? Where you began to establish uh, both of you your your long and wonderfully fruitful relationship with with Bob McNamara, or did that predate the conference? It predated it just um, <clears throat> just a little bit, but it actually because we were we essentially had to have that relationship with Bob in order to recruit him to this conference. Um, but it certainly at every one of these conferences it grew deeper and deeper and uh, uh, you know into a, into really quite an extraordinary uh, relationship that we had with Bob for over two decades. The Cuban Missile <clears throat> Crisis Project uh, was obviously well worth doing on its own. But what it did also with Bob McNamara is it gave him an idea that if this could work on the Cuban Missile Crisis, which after all. Uh, they got out of was not a disaster. It could have been the ultimate disaster, but it didn't turn out that way. Um, to look hard at the Vietnam War, uh, where three million people died, and whose fault is it? And could we ever even imagine a conversation between uh, Vietnamese communist leaders and former members of the Kennedy and Johnson administrations over that? Uh, I don't think any of us would have imagined it except on the heels of the uh, Missile Crisis Project. McNamara got, took that and ran with it and wrote his memoir uh, in retrospect, which came out in 1995. And by the end of 1995, he and we and a few others were in Hanoi asking the question, would you be willing to come out and address these issues? If we brought over some civilian military people from that period, would you? And... Uh, I have to say that Bob McNamara is the only person I think we've ever met who I can imagine actually doing that, and he did it. And uh, the key thing about Bob, and, and this feeds back into understanding about with we should write we should write about him <laughs> with, uh, about critical oral history and how it can work in the recruiting that you have to do and and so forth is. So Bob obviously was an extraordinarily important engine for us. I mean, he allowed us to use him as bait in doing recruiting of other senior people, uh, both Americans and you know Cubans and and uh, Russians on the missile crisis and Vietnamese on the Vietnam project. But the thing about Bob, and the thing that you have to get in some engine on a critical oral history project right. is, there has to be somebody who has the experience, whose curiosity overwhelms his fear because there's no question there's fear. I mean, you're talking about his reputation. You're talking about reexamining an incredible disaster that he was a main participant in. So the fear is there and it's natural. It's reasonable, but over and over again, his curiosity, what didn't I know at the time? That's really where the payoff comes by asking, basically you're putting what you thought you knew at the time, your views, your documents and so forth. You're putting them out there for the other side to say, 
well, that's very well that you thought that, but you know you were wrong because of this, this, and this. But they have to document it as well. And, and that's, that's really, the, really difficult because, um, as you know, uh, really the U.S. is the only sort of uh, culture that uh, has a, a Freedom of Information Act that, that really is ironclad and at work. And so you're, you're dealing with, like in Vietnam, Cuba, Soviet Union, you're dealing with societies that are constructed to conceal, not to reveal. But, but, but our people aren't going to go to the table unless they get something to work with, too. And that becomes a part of the sort of scholarly version of shuttle diplomacy back and forth and back and forth, trying to get something that gives them more information on paper than they would have had at the time, or at least different information than they had at the time, so that there's some kind of uh, sort of I don't know, common ground on which they can both meet and bicker and argue over what these documents mean. Now, I remember uh, you telling me, and, and maybe you can take take listeners through the the next conferences. I know there was one in in Moscow, and then one in Havana, where where uh, Castro even came. But I remember, and you can put this in context, you both telling me the story, uh, and I don't know which conference this was, uh, when McNamara and I guess pretty much everybody else at the table heard from, was it one of the Cuban participants? General that Gripkoff. Uh, uh, the uh, Soviet general who designed the missile deployment. Yeah, and, yeah. and you, you tell the story about about when he said what, what was actually active in Cuba and what would have happened with an American invasion. Yeah, sure. This was Havana, nineteen. This, no, this was, no, is Havana, Havana in 1992. 1992. And Jimmy, mm-hmm. you should you you can set this up in just an incredible way. Put people at the table in Havana. So um, it's tense. Uh, uh, Fidel Castro. Uh, we came down a little bit early. We've been going to Cuba uh, every couple of months for about three years to make this happen because the Cubans were afraid if they held a con- they, they really wanted into this conversation. God damn it. They said, you know, the Russians stiffed us and you guys stiffed us at the time. And now you're holding all these conferences and you think like, well, Cuba was what Cuba was like a parking lot or something, right? No, it all happened here. We were the theater of operations, but you're going to have to come here to hear it because you're going to have to hear it from the man himself, Fidel Castro. So we go back and, you know, well, I mean, it took a lot of uh, confidence building measures, shall we say. <laughs> so we make it. We're there. Uh, <clears throat> on the way over, Bob McNamara had actually stood up at Miami International Airport and said, I don't think I can do this. I don't think I can do this. And God bless Arthur Schlesinger, who stood up and said, Bob, sit down. You're going to do this. <laughs> and something that, you know, we hadn't evolved to the point where we felt like saying that. But he did. He, he made it over there. Who knew what was going to happen? So uh, first day of the conference, Fidel comes in. He goes, does the round, shakes people's hands. He looks, he eyes over McNamara for like 20 seconds just looking at him. By the way, and it's this large conference room, and there's uh, four sides to this table. So one side has um, U.S. Uh, decision makers and key organizers. Directly across are the Soviet uh, side at that point, and then on the other side is is the Cuban side, and then additional people on the on the fourth side. Scholars, yeah. Yeah, and it's set up so that basically Castro's on the shorter side. It's a rectangular table. Castro is right in the middle there. Bob is on the longer side, but he sort of pushed. We pushed him sort of to- closer toward the Cuban side. 
So the two of them, first of all, are just eyeing each other. And all during the early sessions, and Castro, by the way, has he's sitting there like a regular participant. It says Fidel Castro Ruz on his little nameplate. And Oh, that's who that is. I see. Yeah. And what was interesting is for the first couple sessions, every time Bob McNamara talked, Fidel is like taking notes like a freshman in college. Every time Castro talked, McNamara's taking notes like a freshman in college. So, yeah. well, we need to get back to of, that first right, uh, exactly. session. Exactly. So, so then we get this session now where Rip Grifkoff, the um, yeah, General Anatoly Grifkoff, the last, very last uh, uh, head of the Warsaw Pact, because the Warsaw Pact had disintegrated uh, about three weeks before the conference. He's sitting there, and he also designed Operation Anadir, which was the name that the Russians gave to the whole deployment in Cuba. And he he was given the floor. Um, I've forgotten who the chair was. I the chair? I might have been. I can't. We we, we rotated the chair anyway. Yeah. Gribkov looked like, um, I mean, uh, you know, his neck was as thick as most people's shoulders. I mean, he looked perfect for the job. Well, and at this point, he was also very anti-American. We literally had to rent a separate small bus because he wouldn't come from the the resident area where we were staying to the conference. He wouldn't ride in a bus with Americans. So mm. this was not a warm and fuzzy um, person right. by any means. So he started reading, and, you know, he was reading, and it was uh, we had Spanish, English, Russian uh, relay translation going on, and it was getting pretty boring, you know, with so many of these and so many of those. And then I actually missed it. I didn't hear it. But Bob McNamara sitting right next to me did. Um, suddenly he took off his microphone, his earphones. He kind of slammed them down. He said, whoa, wait a whoa, whoa here. Just stop this. And, of course, every, chaos broke out. Like, what's going on? He said, I just heard in my earphone that the Soviets had tactical nuclear weapons to fight a war in Cuba against the Americans. And, and uh, this can't be right. I mean, this can't be right. I mean, look, look what would have happened. I mean, if we'd ordered the, I mean, you see what would have happened. Here's what we need. We need an American general. We have one right here, General William Smith and Gribkoff, if you want to do it. You guys need to go out in the hallway and figure this out because I don't think there were any tactical nuclear weapons in Cuba. Whereupon Fidel Castro slammed his fist down and he said, you're doing it again. You Russians and Americans, you're screwing us again. See, you're going to send a Russian. To- we got generals. I got, I got hundreds of generals on this island. Pick anyone you want. Damn it, you're not going to get away with it this time. Gribkov, now we, we get the pandemonium back to a reasonable level. And Gribkov asks if he could continue. And he said, okay, he continues. Well, he continued. And you could see the color go out of McNamara's face. Because Mac, what he's thinking now, as Gribkoff says, yes, I know I'm right. We had the weapons there. I'm sorry your CIA wasn't clever enough to pick it up, but that's your problem. What you're seeing is McNamara, in his mind, he's playing out the last hours, maybe a day, of the Cuban Missile Crisis, and he knows how much pressure he and Kennedy were under to launch the attack on Cuba because the people urging him said the Russians won't do anything because they're too afraid to antagonize us. And what he's now hearing is, I send in the Marines, and they are incinerated with nuclear fire on the beaches of Cuba, and then two hours later, we sink Cuba, and we kill all these Russians and Cubans, and then they take Berlin, and the world, as we know it, has just ceased to exist. This is what's going on in his mind in a way that 
is different from the way it can go on in your mind and our minds because he was in the chain of command and he there, there was a piece of information possibly the most useful piece of information he could have had he didn't have and in fact he believed exactly the opposite so he says this but Gribkoff doesn't understand it correctly he thinks that McNamara is calling him a liar because that's what Americans do that's his view well so here's an example of a conference that was primarily held to get Fidel Castro's view on the record about things like Cuba's attempt to export revolution to Venezuela and Central America and so forth, the kinds of things that drove the American leadership crazy, what Che Guevara was up to. But here in the very first session, it is totally transformed into something totally different because we hear from a Russian, frankly, that I'd never heard of before, Anatoly Gribkov. Oh, okay, fine. He says something that changed the entire um, understanding of the Cuban Missile Crisis for all time. Well, with the, with this information, and I think McNamara is quite appropriate shock at hearing the information, basically what you have now is the beginning of the death of the argument of the hawks. Uh, because up to that time, you know, you had the the doves and the hawks and well you know kennedy yeah he sort of got out of it but boy he but it was a missed opportunity he could have destroyed cuba blah 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 and not suffered anything mm-hmm. uh, you can't make that argument anymore and what happened is again the way critical oral history works this was sort of the first wedge was gribkoff's verbal testimony we then went back later again um to um to uh Moscow, and you start getting more and more of the documents, and you get more and more of the texture, you get more exact count of the numbers and so forth. But the wedge came in Havana in 1992, um, and it was really quite a shocking moment. Yeah, there are no hawks left standing. There are no, there are no Cuban Missile Crisis hawks at all, and that was the that was the dominant view at the time. And it shows you how one piece of information properly framed coming from the right source and examined after the fact with great care can, uh, you know, well, change the course of not a mighty river, but a, a, a mighty, a mighty view of the Cuban missile crisis. It's a remarkable moment. Um, take us up then through, through these conferences, through your books, through, uh, through doing the fog of, of war, through virtual JFK. Well, I'd like to, uh, yeah, the, the fog of war, Ed was, Really, um, you know, uh, working on the film and then writing a companion book that went with it. Um, this was, um, I think, uh, something uh, probably a hundred years from now. Somebody, uh, I mean, uh, that part of the of our little bio, that part will still matter, even though no one knows who we are, and that's fine. Because what the film did is it. It showed, uh, you know, won the Academy Award, got a lot of attention. It's one of the most widely viewed documentary films in classrooms across the world. It shows that Robert McNamara is a human being, and he is willing to go out there where nobody goes, saying, I, I would have been tried as a war criminal if Japan would have won the war, and the obvious implication is I should have been tried as a war criminal. If, we, if they had won the war. And then he says, what makes it moral if you win and immoral if you lose? That sort of thing. But 
uh, the, we were behind the scenes. We knew Errol, we knew Bob, and they, you know, these are two of the world's greatest control freaks facing off against each other. Whose film is this? Is it Errol's? Is it Bob's? Is it what's going on here? And there were so many times when this could have crashed. But again, it's <clears throat> but the kind Bob of thing. wanted it to happen. He want, yeah, he, he just... would take, I mean, you know, I think Bob McNamara is an extraordinary, was an extraordinary man. Obviously, incredibly flawed and and made horrendous decisions uh, in his life that that contributed to the death of of millions and he appreciated and understood that but i don't i can't think of another example of a person at that level who actually tried to really put forward what this, his mistakes were so that they wouldn't happen again um you know now he didn't do it as completely as, as some of his critics wanted and so forth. But, you know, who's in second place behind him? I, I can't even, even think of it. So it's an extraordinary um, achievement. And I think we felt very um, lucky, really, that we were able to, to push him along. Yeah. Because the thing is, we knew he wanted to do these things. He, you know, again, it was always the curiosity and the fear playing, playing against each other, but we were able to sort of help him over some of the rough spots. And, um, and that was really, you know, was really interesting. But, uh, Ed, I'll tell you how far this came. And, and so we started in 2001, uh, we got involved in the conversation. Errol lived in Cambridge and we lived just you know, 10 miles away and Bob came up every so often. He did the interviews, uh, now, Bob's original idea was that he would sign off on, on uh, okay, sit down, Velcro yourself to your chair. He would do this as long as Vietnam were never mentioned, <laughs> which would have been a film that nobody would have been interested in, and it would have been a co- co- colossal missed opportunity. So to get from that point to where the Vietnam War is, is the heart and soul of the movie and to watch him really squirming on screen and to, and and to know that he saw that film before you saw that film and he was willing to live with it even if he wasn't terribly happy about some aspects of it and of course Errol Morris is an artist that film is a work of art i mean he couldn't bob mcmurray could not get himself to say the kinds of things that he's gotten to Errol got him to say because of the fear factor as Janet's been talking about it. The curiosity is there too, but the fear, I mean, if you thought you were implicated in the deaths in a direct way of 3 million people, would you want to talk about it? And would you want to talk about it on film? And would you want to, would you like to deal with a filmmaker who was really famous? You know, I don't think so, but he made it happen. We had a little role to play where, uh, went kind of like I'll, I can tell this story better than Janet because she's too shy. This is one of the rare cases where she's too shy. We'd leave a meeting and Bob would say, "I'm not going to do this." Now this could have been a lot of things. I'm not going to go to Cuba. I'm not going to go to Russia. I'm not going to. But I'm not making this film with that guy. Okay, fine. Uh, okay, thanks, Bob. Uh, we'll be in touch. Three o'clock in the morning comes a phone message. He knows that we turn our phone off at night. Uh, a phone message comes in, and it goes like this. Janet, this is Bob. Please don't give up on me. Please. This happened over and over again where he, he, he would not be able to sleep. He'd collect himself in the middle of the night. He would think about the pros and the cons and so forth. And then it was always Janet. Janet, give me a call. 
I, you know, I'm not doing, I, I need, I need to help, help me walk this, help me walk through this. And it's on that basis that, I mean, time after time, when he, when he said to Errol or he said to the producer, Sony, or he said to us or somebody else, I'm not doing this. I'm not going to go out and hang myself in front of the human race. Um, but he went ahead anyway. It's just amazing courageous thing to do and I, I think maybe the audience would be interested here I mean I I once strung up a paper mache effigy of Robert McNamara behind Angel Hall on the University of Michigan campus and because I'm tall I was the guy who got to yank the rope now that's where I started all this I thought I hated the man I thought he was now I actually said this in a public forum out in Colorado once. With Bob sitting next to me. Bob sitting next to me. I thought, well, it's a home game for him. He's got a house in Colorado. A lot of people there. We're talking, we're actually talking about the missile crisis principally, but okay, Vietnam has to come up if Bob McNamara is there. So I thought, you know, what better time? Let me just say it. So I told him, Angel Hall, blah, 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 blah. You know, he lived in Ann Arbor for quite a long time when he was at Ford. He knew where Angel Hall was. And then after I said it, I just thought, what in the hell are you doing, Bella? I mean, I, this is not the kind of thing you say in public. Uh, I finished. He looked at me, and there was you could have heard a pin drop in the audience. He looked at me, and he said, huh, you know, I always thought the anti-war people were smarter than the other ones. <laughs> and, of course, nervously, everybody erupted in laughter because who knew what was going to happen next? Anyway, that's... <laughs> that's, we called him Maximum Bob after a, uh, a, a Elmore Dutch Leonard uh, novel called Maximum Bob. It's about a guy in, it's about a judge in Florida who uh, who's been known to hang people for parking tickets. That seemed to fit his personality. Well, the name was, was good. So through all of these conferences, all your work on the Cuban Missile Crisis, all the other stuff that you did, uh, working. On, on Vietnam and now working on U.S. Uh, uh, Iranian relations since, since the Iranian Revolution. But back you come uh, to the Cuban Missile Crisis with the Armageddon Letters and the website, thearmageddonletters.com, trying to introduce new generations, uh, and I'll let you talk about these wonderfully new ways. And, but in addition to the voices of discovery uh, that that are in the other books. There's uh, there's a real there's a, a really strong message here that we need to pay attention to the Cuban Missile Crisis, and that paying attention has to lead to abolition. And as I listened to you talk about that in the videos and read it in the book, I thought how politically central abolition has become since the famous Gang of Five wrote their op-ed in the Wall Street Journal, um, things that Jonathan Shell said, you know, a, a half a generation ago that were considered so radically naive are now not so naive anymore. And part of what you're doing in the Armageddon Letters is really tying the Cuban Missile Crisis to not look what almost happened in the past, but this is going to happen again, and it's not, we're not going to be so lucky the next time. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. I think I remember in 1986 when we first got involved in this. Uh, 1986 was a year of uh, uh, that the Red Sox lost the World Series, which they used to do on a regular basis. 
And a guy in the Boston Globe wrote a piece following that. He had gotten in touch with a bunch of baseball geek statisticians, and he wanted to know what the odds were that so-and-so Bill Buckner would have fielded the ground ball or missed it and so forth. And he came up with something like uh, if you if you played that series out or that game out 250 times, that the Sox would win 249 of them. But this happened to be the one they lost. And that we framed that and hung it in our study for the longest time because that's how we view the missile crisis. You you have absolutely no idea how lucky we were. It's not just luck. It's cosmic luck. You're given a second chance, but all anyone ever focuses on here is that we got out of it, not how close we came to not getting out of it, and why the Cuban factor is so important because nobody paid attention to it, nobody understood it, nobody understands what it's like. The, the powerful countries have no conception of what it's like to be really, really weak, but also to have a kind of sense of yourself and, and to have integrity and to, to think that you're as important in certain ways as the larger crowd. And of course, Cuba fits that perfectly, but so does Iran and so does Israel and so does India and so does Pakistan and maybe even North Korea, although who knows about North Korea. But all of these things, you, in all these things, you have the intersection of weapons of mass destruction and uh, a people, a nation, and a leadership that feel they are insufficiently respected and insufficiently understood because there just isn't the interest. Well, the, the, in that 19, in, the, in 1962, that just about blew up the world, and we know more about that close call now than we ever dreamed we'd know, and probably than we know about anything else like it. And so, part you know, like we talked earlier about with the critical oral history, that you know, while there's the three components, the former former decision makers, the scholars, and the documents, pride of place really goes to the former decision makers. And the other two sides, in a sense, are there, you know, as correctives and to, to kind of really, you know, help to, to make sure that we try to get as, as honest um, an understanding of the event as we can. But the idea is these people who lived through it and didn't know how it was going to come out this is really important, and so our thought as the 50th anniversary is coming was coming up was how do we how can we try again to convey what it was really like this notion of a time machine and to really because if you even from our research and and from talking with hundreds of people on all three sides, I mean we get this understanding of my goodness, there were people who were, you know, we were lucky that these people were in those positions of power at that time. But even then, we needed additional luck. I mean, you really get this sense of how close we came to obliteration. And how do we sort of convey that to a group of a whole new generation, really, that this is partly what we're trying to, to get at in the Armageddon letters is a whole new generation of, uh, of young people who haven't a clue about the missile crisis. And if you start to just tell them the same yada yada story, uh, they, are, they would be bored and maybe reasonably so. So our idea was... Yeah, I mean, the missile crisis, I don't know about your students, but I mean, ours in Brown or, or here at University of Waterloo, I mean, they can't even place the event in the right decade. Uh, or quarter century. I mean, it's somewhere between the Peloponnesian Wars and what I had for breakfast, but who knows? 
Yeah, we've got a, our, our young colleague uh, who we attracted up here from Brown, Ko- Koji Masatani, who's who's managing the website and who kind of has the unenviable task every morning of pulling us into the 21st century from the 19th where we're more comfortable. He um, convinced us that um, uh, people his generation, I think Koji just turned 30 now, he thinks he's over the hill, but he thinks that um, people need to hear things in multiple ways from multiple modes and venues and so forth. And so uh, Koji is a talented filmmaker, but uh, who made virtual JFK in 2008. But so we have, you know, graphic narratives, novels, I guess you'd call it short films, animated live action podcasts. Uh, We have uh, by a very special arrangement, we have Kennedy Khrushchev and Castro blogging for us. And then there's the book to kind of anchor the whole thing. And uh, it's and even for the book, uh, basically what we tried to do. For yeah, we've this, never done anything like this before. Yeah, for this um, sort of new adventure, uh, for the the 50th anniversary, we figured you know the spotlight's going to be on there. We have an opportunity to try to catch a younger audience uh, here that we won't have you know next year or the year after. And the idea, even in the book, is again, it's this time machine. Can we sort of, so the, the book is written in present tense. Uh, we've never done that before. Not as that hard. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's basically, it's in a sense, it's a, it's a way to try to look at three mini biographies because we do have the belief, the strong belief, actually, that, you know, human agency matters, that it mattered that it was Kennedy. Khrushchev and Castro, and that you need to get to know these people. You need to understand as well as you can what it was like, what they felt like in Washington, Moscow, and Havana during this time, how they got into this mess and how they tried to get out of it, and that it's understanding those kinds of things that have current implications, and especially, as Jim mentioned, um, especially understanding the role of Cuba, which is usually ignored. I mean, if you go back and look at all the stuff that came out for the 50th anniversary of the missile crisis. You know, our way of describing it is there'd be a ton of stuff on Kennedy in the U.S. position, maybe 500 pounds on Khrushchev and, and the Soviet position. If you're lucky, you get a pound on Castro. And that's the theater of operations. That's what has implications for for current, you know, policy, we think. So it was a big deal for us to try to engage people, get them interested in understanding the three men, uh, the three situations, and to do it as creatively as we could. And Koji Masutani was super crucial in giving us more tools to reach uh, more people. I mean, like... uh we would not necessarily have come up with the idea that we needed a short film called Lady Gaga and the Cuban Missile Crisis. That would not necessarily have occurred to us. Uh, but it's in there. <clears throat> and, uh, you know, I, I uh, encourage uh, listeners to go ahead and see what they think. But the the book itself is written, as Dan said, in the present tense, but it's also written <clears throat> uh, like a novel. Um, I mean, there, you know, this is the uh, kind of Michael Beschloss Strobe Talbot model here, but with quotation marks around things that we weren't present at, but we we didn't spend hundreds and hundreds of hours on the island of Cuba for nothing. And I can tell you that uh, that combined with very close friendship with Sergei Khrushchev uh, for 20 years, our colleague at Brown. And then all our years with McNamara. And, and then, of course, the I mean, Kennedy administration. Our view so. is that there's nothing in the book 
to, to our knowledge. That violates anything in the record. That we know. Yeah, and I mean, so what we tried to do is to take the record and make it come alive. Make it obvious to people that it's real people in 1962 and it will be real people in 2012 and, and thereafter. And that's sort of a key message that, that we want to convey in the book. Well, I think it, it works brilliantly. I know when, when I sat down uh, to read the book, which I did in, in two different times, uh, I, was, I was sweating and, and nervous all over again. Um, it's, it's a magnificent project, um, with the book and, and the website. Uh, and uh, you have both been wonderful to take this time to recount these amazing experiences. And I hope one of your next books will be uh, a book-length reflection of the kind of stuff that you've done today. I mean, you, you do some of it in the Armageddon letters, but I think a book would be, would be really good. And before I let you go, however... If we write it, Ed, will you review it? Absolutely. Uh, I'll review it myself because uh, I probably won't, I won't be. <laughs> All right, we anymore. got it on record. <laughs> um, but before I let you go, uh, I want to talk about the most scary thing in this case, um, Janet. I don't think you had to face this, but but the Cuban Missile Crisis was really scary, Jim. But the, yeah. the scariest thing that you ever faced, and I want you to tell listeners about this before <laughs> we stop, is when when you were playing minor league baseball, and mm. if I remember correctly, it was a night game in a dimly mm-hmm. lit ballpark, right. and you came to bat against Nolan Ryan. Nolan went to, back home to Texas to join the National Guard where he pitched baseball for six months. And then uh, uh, he was uh, the Mets property then. He was 19 years old, and uh, uh, they brought him to the Florida State League, the uh, kind of down-in-the-mouth down league I was playing in because it was warm, and a pitcher would be less likely to you know, hurt his arm in a warm, moist climate. And by God, that was a warm, moist climate in Central Florida. Um, yeah, so I was. They brought him in <clears throat> in the ninth inning, and we had already basically, <clears throat> basically won the game. Um, <clears throat> and everybody's like, "Who is this guy? Why are they bringing another guy?" In? And what? Anyway, he threw one that almost went through the backstop. As I'm looking out, thinking. I don't want to die here tonight. I absolutely do not want to die in the batter's box. Okay, here's where I'm... So it was a common strategy. This is pre-designated hitter, so the strategy is swing it, you know, just take take three, swing three, whatever. Get the hell out of there. Um, so the first one, I, I didn't see it. I heard it pop in the catcher's mitt, and I thought, oh my, this is worse than I thought it was going to be. Um, now the second pitch is the one, though, that... that for which Nolan Ryan will get no forgiveness from me, which is he threw a curveball. <laughs> he arced that sucker from third base over the outside corner, and I hit the dirt as the umpire called strike two. I was literally on my butt. And I turned to the cat. By this time, I was feeling, I turned to the catcher, and I said, look, I'm swinging. You know, I don't throw every one. I'm good. And so I threw, I swung. And of course he wasn't Nolan. I mean, he wasn't Nolan Ryan. Then he was just some kid named Nolan Ryan. And years and years later, I would periodically uh, watching a baseball game, think uh, maybe a little like the missile crisis. Uh, you know, I could be dead. I could have been dead as a teenager. I could have been a dead teenager bleeding to death with a skull all over the place, all over home plate. And, 
uh, I, I should add that I learned something about Nolan after the game, which is that that, that was actually his second appearance in, in that league. That the first time he had hit a guy in the head. Uh, now, this is helmet, but it's not the kind of helmet that has an ear flap and so forth. And that the guy was fine, but uh, some weeks later, uh, you could still see Rawlings uh, tattooed <laughs> on his cheekbone. And I, I think actually, if I'd if I'd have known that before I stepped into the batter's box, I would have retired from baseball at that point. So. But you see, Ed, going through this experience was really I crucial. Mean, yeah, how Fidel? After I this, mean, really. I mean, really managing Fidel, managing Bob McNamara, you know, all the stuff. I mean, it is truly a piece of cake. Absolutely. Well, I was I was thinking about getting ready for the podcast that I would. Uh, change the story to elevate your status even more that you hit a 535 foot home run off Nolan mm. Ryan, but, <laughs> but being a historian and with the fear that somebody listening to somebody this would might know. have been there. And knowing that, that night. Jim's lifetime batting average began with a point zero something. <laughs> yeah, 93 actually it was, point oh nine three. Actually, there. when I wrote a piece about this for the Brown Alumni <laughs> magazine, the uh, the editor, still the editor, Norman Boucher, was a tremendous baseball fan. Was in those days a season ticket holder to Red Sox games. Um, he also has is a, a journalist, so he also respects the facts. And he uh, got in touch with the Hall of Fame. Now, now you know my name had never been mentioned in the same sentence with the Hall of Fame, the Hall of Shame, maybe. But but uh, I had told him, or I guess I put it in the article that I had played for the Montgomery Rebels of Montgomery, Alabama. And he confronted me by saying that there was no record. Uh, Here's the significance. It was a double-A. Yeah, Montgomery was a double-A club of the Tigers, and I had never made it out of A-ball, except for that. And I began to think, didn't I I pitch for Montgomery? I mean, I'm thinking about this. I I don't have anything to prove it. And then I remembered what happened. Um, In order to have a record, you have to be in a game. And I went down for 29 days. They could put me on the roster and not raise my salary past the $400 a month I was making in A-ball. If I'd have been 30 days there, they'd had to raise it by $25, and I wasn't worth it, frankly. So they sent me back to A-ball, and it was like I never existed in Montgomery, Alabama. And Boucher liked that one even better than the rest of the story. (laughs) Another crucial lesson for critical oral history. Absolutely. Absolutely. Be careful about documents. <laughs> they tell you stuff, but sometimes they don't. Uh, well, let me remind listeners uh, uh, that Jim and Janet's most recent book, The Armageddon Letters, is accompanied by a, a wonderful website. Uh, so I hope you will, will all both um, read the book and uh, look at the website. And Jim and Janet, thank you so much for taking the time to do this today. This is going to be a wonderful podcast for us. Well, thanks, and uh, you're welcome. Thanks, Ed. It was fun. This podcast is produced by the Journal of American History, the leading scholarly publication and the Journal of Record in American History. Visit us on the web at www.journalofamericanhistory.org. Please support the journal by becoming a member of the Organization of American Historians. Subscribe online at www.oah.org and you will receive a printed copy of the journal four times a year.